Hello. Thanks for joining us today. Here's perhaps the most important question we ever consider. What are we looking for out of life? Why are we living? What's it all about? What is our goal in our relationships with one another? How can we find the harmony in life that we're seeking so desperately? These are very hard questions, and they're made even more difficult by the fact that we have so many different answers that we hear from so many different people who claim to have authority. So who can we believe? Who can we trust? Deep within ourselves, if we're willing to explore it and look at it, we have a great desire to find unity, to be one. The seal of the United States says, E Pluribus Unum. Out of many, one is what that means. In song, many people like you two and others speak of being one and finding unity. And in the New Testament, Jesus speaks of seeking and finding unity in John 17, 20 through 23. Let's spend some time exploring how we might find oneness and find true unity. And to find true unity, we need to begin at the beginning in the beginning, God. Everything that we can learn about unity will be rooted in a good understanding of God. What can we learn about God? Who is He? What can be known about Him? How does He help us understand our need for unity? So let's begin by exploring what we can know about God from the pages of the Bible. Now maybe you're not yet sold that the God revealed in the Old and New Testaments is a true God, or that you can trust the Bible. It's okay for now. We ask that you at least give the presentation a hearing, and to consider what we have to say. We hope to show that the way God is portrayed in the Scriptures is consistent with the reality we experience, much more so than the caricature of God that so many believe, even those who profess to follow Jesus. The Bible establishes that God is the creator of heaven and earth in Genesis chapter 1 to chapter 2 and verse 3. That all things exist because of God, and that without God, nothing could exist. And not only is God our creator, but that everything that exists continues to exist because God sustains it through his power in Colossians 1.17 and Hebrews 1 and verse 3 in the Bible. Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to have special knowledge and understanding about God, declared in John 4.24 that God is spirit. Now, honestly, we're not told a whole lot about the nature of spiritual beings. But we do see in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, that God made man and woman in his image, in his likeness, he made them. And so, God is going to have both masculine and feminine characteristics. God is not an it. He has personality, and he cannot be reduced to some kind of impersonal energy or force. We speak of God as he or him, since that's what we find in the Old and New Testaments, for the sake of convenience and understanding, without having to express confidence that God is either male or female in gender. Now, the Bible will set forth many of God's characteristics. In the Psalms, in the book of Job and Acts, Hebrews and Revelation, 
we see that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. God has a name. It is represented by Hebrew letters yod heh vav heh which we translate as Y-H-W-H, most likely pronounced Yahweh. It derives from a Hebrew verb to be. You see this in Exodus 3, 14, and 15. Say, I am who that I am has sent you. It's existent one. Is. Being. Is a way of understanding the name of God. In Acts 17, 26 and 27, we are told that in God we live and move and have our being. That without him nothing could be, but all things can be because he is. Since God is our creator, the author and giver of life, all-powerful and all-knowing, it would mean that we are not. The prophet Isaiah declared that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, Moses declared that the secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things that he has revealed belong to us and to our children forever. What's very important is to remember that on our own, we humans cannot reason ourselves into an understanding of God. That we are entirely dependent upon God to make known to us the truth regarding himself and us. Because he is so great, much greater than we are. We believe that God has provided such communication through the people who have faithfully communicated those messages to us in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Now we can easily imagine a lot of questions that we might ask about God and reality whose answers we would not understand or which would not really have any effectiveness in our lives. And that's why we need to be careful. If something hasn't been revealed, we cannot declare it with certainty. But what has been revealed, as Moses said, can be understood. It can be appreciated and we do well to explore these things. So, so far we've seen that God is our creator. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. We can know some things about him that he has revealed to us, but there's going to be a lot that's well beyond our understanding. But this leads us to an immediate question. If God is so great, why would he create us? Why does this universe exist, and why are we in it? Why did God create this physical place? In order to understand and consider these important questions, we need to first dig deeper into what God has made known about himself in Scripture. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 4 through 6, Moses declares a fundamental truth about God. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Now when Moses says that, it's a very controversial belief, because ancient people believed in many gods in charge of different forces and different entities. Israelites would suffer persecution for their insistence in the belief in one God, would be declared atheists by their opponents because they believe that God is one. But how is God one? Many have assumed, and assume to this day, that God is one like you are one and I am one. He is one in person. But when we turn the pages of the Bible, we, we see something else. John chapter 1 and verse 1, we're told, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. In John 8 and verse 58, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, in Greek, ego eimi, in Aramaic or Hebrew, something suspiciously sounds like Yahweh. Colossians 2 and verse 9, 
Oh, the Apostle Paul says that in Jesus, the fullness of Godhead dwelt in bodily form. We get the impression in 1 Peter chapter 1, the first two verses, in 2 Peter 1, 20-21, that the Holy Spirit is also called God. That God spoke through men as he, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this has led to one of these questions that's just continue to exist for almost 2,000 years. How can God be one if the Bible speaks of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all as God? And throughout time, there have been a few different answers given to this question. First possible answer is that God is still one, but he has three different forms. In this view, God remains one person, but he comes as God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit. This is often called modalism, because in this view, the different persons are just considered different modes of the same person. But in Matthew 3, 16 and 17, when Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends upon him as a dove, and a voice cries out from the heavens, This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. In John 8, 17 and 18, Jesus speaks of the Father and himself as separate witnesses. The law required two witnesses, and he says, I am a witness, and my father is a witness. And therefore, this idea that God is one person in three different forms does not accurately explain the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that is revealed in Scripture. Another answer is to say, okay, well, the Father is God, and the Son and the Spirit are just lesser divinities. Uh, created beings, which was, of course, the big idea that Arius had that led to Arianism uh, in the third century and following. In this view, God the Father is God is one person, and the Son and the Spirit are these lesser, lesser divine and created beings. But as we saw in Colossians 2.9, Paul says the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. John says the word was not only with God, but God in one, John 1.1. 1, 1. And Paul says that God is worthy of worship as the creator, and the creation should not receive worship in Romans 1.25. Yet Jesus received worship as God in Matthew 14.33, 28 verse 9, and verse 17. And so Jesus cannot be part of the creation, but is the creator, as John himself says in John 1.1-3. 1, 1 so this view also does not accurately explain the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as revealed in Scripture. And this leads us to the third possible answer, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God in three persons. Because the previous possibilities maintain this assumption that God is one in personhood. Yet no passage of Scripture ever actually comes out and says that God is one in person. Instead, and for good reason, early Christians insisted, both that there is one God only, and that he is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons. And this is, of course, the idea of the Trinity, or the triune God. Now, you might have noticed that we've now ventured into the realm of theology. Theology tends to have a bad reputation. Unfortunately, it's not entirely undeserved. People think it's irrelevant to life, people pontificating about various things that have very little to do with reality. But in its most basic form, theology is the study of God. And everybody, you and I and everyone we know, has some theology of sorts. They have some idea about God, who he is, and what he's like. 
And how we understand the nature of God is going to directly influence how we understand ourselves and the world around us. And so theology is actually of great importance. And what we're trying to do is to do good theology and to make it relevant for life. So let's get back to this important question. How can God be one in three persons? There's a lot beyond our understanding. We shouldn't pretend otherwise. But we can explain some things based upon what God has revealed about himself. God is one in eternal existence. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are eternal. This word was with God in the beginning, in John 1, 1 through 3. The Spirit was hovering over the waters, in verse 2 of Genesis 1. God says, let us make man in our image, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God is also the same substance or being. They are all spirit. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word would become flesh, sure. But even when he took on human form, he remained fully God, Paul said in Colossians 2 and verse 9. And God is spirit in John 4, 24. God is also one in character. The Son is the exact imprint of the character of the Father in Hebrews 1 and verse 3. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father as well. God maintains one will, having the same purpose, ideas, and intentions, as we will see further in John 17, 20-23. In short, God maintains relational unity. And we see this idea of relational unity, being one in relationship, in John 17, 20-23. A passage in which Jesus is praying to the Father on behalf of all of those who will believe in Jesus through the word of the apostles, so everybody who would become a Christian, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. Notice throughout that passage, what Jesus is trying to do is based upon the unity that exists between him and the Father. That the Father is in him and he is in the Father, and yet they remain distinct persons. We call this, and it's a fancy term, perichoretic relational unity. Perichoresis is when you have mutual indwelling of two people, and yet each person remains distinct. And so that's how they can be in each other, but never lose individual personality. So their unity is in relationship, not personhood. And that unity is so strong that even though God is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, Scripture consistently speaks of God in the singular. And so Yahweh, God, is and is one. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all perfectly one. So God is one in relational unity. So what? How can we know this for sure? And how does it relate to the creation, to our existence, and our purpose? Well, we can get back to those answers in John chapter 17, these verses that we've just read. But before we do that, there are a few big issues that we need to consider. And then we'll be able to come back to it and really understand what God is trying to tell us. The first big issue is love. In 1 John 4 and verse 8, John says, God is love. Now, in our culture, we have a lot of challenges in terms of how we can come to a good understanding of what love is. 
and far too many want this statement to be reversed, for love to be God. But John says God is love, and that word love is a Greek word agape, and it demands self-sacrificial love that seeks the best interest of the beloved, even if that best interest is not the best interest of the one who is loving. And we see this most fully manifest in Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We see that in 1 John 4, 7 through 21, when, when, Jesus, when God says, John says there that uh, God is love. He expresses this in terms of Jesus. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So John elaborates. What does love look like? Well, we know love because God loved us because he sent Jesus to be the, the propitiation for our sins. And the Apostle Paul will define love for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Such a beautiful passage. Used so many times at weddings and things of that nature. But deep down it shows great self-sacrifice and great concern for the other. And if you notice in all of these understandings of love, love is inherently relational. If you're going to love, you must have something or someone to love, an object. And this helps us understand how God must be one in three persons and not just a, a singular unity. Because if he's a singular unity of personhood, he's the ultimate narcissist because he would love himself. Or he would be in need of something other than himself to love and therefore not be sufficient. But we can more easily understand God as love in terms of the Father loving the Son, the Father loving the Spirit, the Son loving the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit loving the Father and the Son. That God is relational within himself if he is love. So that's the first understanding of how we can, the big issue that we need to understand to make sense of what we're seeing here in John. The other big issue that we need to see, number two, is to understand God and his nature. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 19, the Apostle Paul again has some information that's very important for us in our attempt to understand these things. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In context, Paul's trying to explain that everybody should know at least enough about God to see uh, his great power through what he has made and his divine nature and what he has created. This leads us to a creation. Okay, we can see his divine power everywhere. Power, really wonderful, majestic scenery in the world. But where is his divine nature manifest? And that gets us to the big issue number three. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we're told, 
that God made man in his likeness. In his image, he made them, male and female, he made them. And we said it, let us make man in our image. In Acts chapter 17, uh, as Paul is attempting to make clear the nature of the situation before the Athenians, he declares that God is not actually far from one, each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So that man and woman are made in God's image and likeness, and that he has made us and we are God's offspring. But what does that look like? How do we maintain the image of God? Well, God is not physically flesh, but spirit. We're not going to look for God's image in our physical appearance. It has to do with our minds, hearts, and souls. And to understand that, we need to understand a little bit more about that question that we began with. What are we looking for in life? How would you answer that question right now? We might have different answers at different times. But when we start having those answers investigated and probed, our answers really are not that fundamentally different in the end. Maybe you say, well, I'd love some more money and a more comfortable lifestyle. Well, we might desire those things. But have you ever noticed we don't desire to have them alone? For instance, people may want Ebenezer Scrooge's money, but who wants to be Ebenezer Scrooge? Sex? A lot of people want sex. But what is sex but creating some sort of relational connection with another person? Fame? Well, what's fame except for other people thinking highly of you? If you notice all these things and many more, show that we're really yearning to maintain connections with other people. All of us seek that special someone with whom we can maintain an intimate physical, spiritual, and emotional relationship. We desperately want to be loved, even despite our insecurities and flaws, to be accepted and to be appreciated for who we are and often despite who we are. And this is even recognized scientifically. Many times, children who fail to thrive do so because they have not received physical and emotional connection and nurturing. And people who have loving relationships prove much healthier than those who don't. Humans are social animals. We are not designed to be isolated from each other, to be alienated from each other. We can see this all the more when we consider the relationship that we talk about normally when we talk about relationship, which is marriage. What happens in marriage? Well, a man and a woman, unrelated and ideally without previous marital commitments, have some reason to interact. They get to know each other. And because of various things, circumstance, chemicals, they form a strong connection. Because of that strong connection, they commit to each other because of their love that they have for one another. Now, they remain two distinct individual persons, and yet they become one. They are one in being, they strive to become one in will and purpose, and they seek the best interest of the other, even if it requires personal sacrifice. The me and you become we. When the two become one, they desire to share that love of the creation made in their image, children. Now, children are raised with the expectation that the relationship with the parents doesn't just end at 18 or 22, but is supposed to continue through life. That the two, becoming one, are then able to share, multiply and share in love and relationship with many children, and of course, ideally grandchildren, going beyond. Should we think that any of this is coincidental? In Genesis 2 and verse 18, God said, It is not good for man to be alone. And so in verse 24, 
He said that uh, a man and woman will leave father and mother, a man will cling to his wife, two will become one flesh. Now, it's not good for man to be alone because man is made in the image of God, the one in three persons, who shares in relational unity. Man is made for relationship because God is one in relationship. And in fact, in marriage, man and the woman become one as a father, son, the spirit are one. Perichoretic relational unity comes back again. So let's go back to John 17 there for a moment. We see that the Father is in the Son, the Son's in the Father, and the same is true about the Spirit as well. And Jesus' great prayer is for his followers to be one with God and with each other as God is one in himself, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. So we are to share in unity with God. So now we have some answers to the questions we've been exploring. God is one in relational unity among the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, so unified that we speak of him in the singular. God is love, and he shares that love within himself. And therefore we can understand somewhat about this relationship with the analogy to marriage, which itself is designed and modeled on the relationship among the Godhead, because God's divine nature is manifest in man who is made in his image. As the sharing of love within a relationship leads to a desire to share that love with created offspring, so God wanted to share the love he maintained within himself with the creation he made, and especially with mankind, his offspring made in his image. And in this way, God is our Father, and seeks to have a deep, abiding relationship with mankind, his children, to mutually share in that self-sacrificial love. Now, yet, as we saw, love does not seek its own in 1 Corinthians 13. And God is love. So God cannot coerce or compel us to share in that love. Instead, God invites us to share in that love and to love him and to love one another in him. Is there a God? It's a question a lot of people ask. And if there is a God, is he the triune God revealed in the pages of the Bible? Let's stop for a second and consider the world in which we live. Can we not perceive that there is a power greater than ourselves out there? A power that's intelligent, creative being who can appreciate aesthetic pleasures such as art and beauty? Do we not appreciate beauty and creativity? Do we, not, do we seek after meaning, connection, relationship, and love? Do we not receive the impression that there is something more to life than just the biological realities of living? Why is it that we seek meaning if meaning is really just a tragic misfiring of biological development. Why are we nagged with this understanding deep down that there are such things as right and wrong, and those things exist beyond ourselves, and that justice is something worth pursuing? And why are we all so afraid of being left alone and abandoned as individuals and as a people together? Paul's right. There is a God. And his eternal power and divine nature can be perceived in the physical universe and within the design of humanity made in his image. It makes sense to believe that God is love and that all things exist on account of that love. And it makes sense that if God is three in one, maintaining relational unity, that humans therefore seek relationship, not just with fellow humans, but also with his environment and with his creator that it is not good for us to be alone, that we need a relationship with our Creator, 
And so I hope that we can see that we are made in God's image, the one who is God who is one in relational unity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, perfectly one and love. And we seek relationships because we are made for relational unity. We ought to strive for relational unity with God and for with each other. And may we love God as his offspring and live in his joy for all eternity. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that you've been benefited by our discussion. Maybe you've got a lot of questions about this idea of who God is, and maybe you perceive that there's a lot of problems in the world, and we encourage you to consider as we continue our discussion with one man in a future time. Perhaps you'd like to learn more about God. Perhaps you'd like to consider more about the things that we have taught at other times. You'd like to read some articles. Any way we can be of service, you can find us online at venicechurchofchrist.org. We're also on social media. You can also contact me, Ethan, personally at deverbovitae.com, www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.